We are, excuse me, we're continuing our look uh, in John chapter 1, our Christmas text is here in John chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 through 18. No, excuse me. <clears throat> you can find that in your belt, in your bulletin. But the um, blockbuster, probably too long, uh, movie of the Christmas season this year is likely going to be The Hobbit. <clears throat> the desolation of Smaug, or however they say it. I just enjoy listening to the commercials for it. Uh, and, and I don't want to give anything away, but Bilbo does get eaten by the dragon. So just... But we all love those Tolkien characters, right? Uh, we, we read the books, and, and you feel like you get to know these creatures from this other world. Uh, you, they feel like you're your friends and your companions. But what if I were to tell you all to turn around right now and you look in the back of the room and, and through the back doors were coming Bilbo Baggins uh, and, and the dwarves. You, you turn around and you saw Thorn and Balin and Bifur and Bofur and Bomber and Dory and Dwalin and Feely and Glowin and Keely and Nori and Owen and Ori. I just wanted to say that. If, if, if you saw all of them coming through the back of the ring with, with Gandalf leading them and, and maybe even the dragon coming after them, or maybe not the dragon. And then they, they came in and then they sat down and they started worshiping with us. And you got to you got to talk to them. Then they came over for lunch and some of them came to the Christmas party tonight. What if those written words in the pages of Tolkien books came to life not just on the movie screen, but they actually came to life and were here with us. I mean, you can, you can describe a hobbit, and you can talk about a hobbit, and you can have a general idea of what a, a hobbit is like, but if, if, if Bilbo came into the room or Frodo, you could see a hobbit and talk to a hobbit and see what a hobbit is like and, and actually get to know it. What if a hobbit walked in and became a part of our everyday reality? What if the legend, what if the myth became reality, became a fact? In a sense, in a sense, that's what's happened with the incarnation. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the unseen but real God has taken on human flesh. He's moved off the pages of the book, so to speak, and he's come into our everyday existence. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, says that there's an underlying reality and truth that all good stories, like The Hobbit, glimpse. He said that, that these stories are legends and they're myths, but they reflect a true story. They, they reflect a greater story. And, and basically what he's saying is that incarnation the underlying story that's a real story, that's a true story, is actually broken in to human history. He says it's come into history and it's so lodged at the root of our thinking in our hearts to reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. That the story behind all the other stories is real. And that, that God really has walked into the room the God who created all things has taken on human flesh and He's come as a little baby uh, crying and, and whittling around and needing to be fed and changed 
and cared for by his mother. Uh, he had to be taught the talk like you or I are taught the talk. Uh, he, he grew up and he got tired and he got sick and he had a chore list. you believe that? He had a chore list. He had things that, that he had to do every day. He worked as a carpenter. Uh, he put up with the indignities of life and ultimately he gave his life on the cross. Uh, the great king came the great king that all the other stories longed for, the great king really did come and he took on human flesh. He returned in flesh and blood. But why did he do that? Why did he take on flesh and blood? That's what we're going to look at and think about this morning. I'm going to read this whole text uh, and then we're going to concentrate our attention on these last four or five verses. But, but please give attention to the reading of God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the life that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we uh, approach Your Word and we approach a mystery this morning. Uh, how Jesus Christ would take on uh, human flesh and live and walk among us. Uh, Father, help us to see this morning the reason why He did that. And to be changed by seeing it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the Son of God who has existed from all eternity in relationship uh, with, with the Father and with the Spirit, the one through whom all things were made, took on human flesh. He took on humanity without losing uh, in any sense His deity. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Fully God, fully man, two natures in one person. Can you tell you how that works? Well, I, I can't really. Uh, and, 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 I'm not, and I'm going to try to tell you how exactly that works because the Bible doesn't really spend time telling you how exactly that works. It doesn't invite you to puzzle over it. Uh, J.I. Packer put it this way, the New Testament does not encourage us to puzzle our heads over the physical and psychological problems that it raises 
but to worship God for the love that He has shown us in it. For it was a great act of condescension and self-humbling. In other words, the New Testament doesn't waste time trying to explain to you how the incarnation worked and how Jesus Christ can be fully God and fully man at the same time. But instead it points us to the incarnation and calls us to be amazed by it. Calls us to worship God because of the love He's shown us in the incarnation. So as we attempt to answer this question tonight, or this tonight, this morning, uh, why did God become a man? I hope that you'll see, flowing through all the answers that I give, I hope you'll see the love of God for sinful man flowing through every one of these reasons for the incarnation. But I'm going to give you four for us to think about this morning. Why did Jesus become a man? The first one is this, is simply to make God known. To make God known. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God... The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made Him known. If you read through the Old Testament, uh, there's this ongoing idea that people don't just get to look at God and live. People have partial visions of God. Uh, Abraham uses voice. He speaks with angels. He sees God as a, as a flaming fire pot, as a smoking fire pot. Um, the one exception you see perhaps in the Old Testament is in Exodus 24 where we're told that Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders see God but evidently it's not seeing his face it's not seeing him as he really is because later in Exodus 34 Moses says to God please show me your glory and this is what God says to him I will make all my goodness pass before you I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. But John says, in Jesus Christ, he says, we have seen his glory. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. We have seen his glory. Jesus, the one who is at the Father's side for all eternity, uh, the Greek here is that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. And the idea is that the picture is him of, of laying his head on the chest of the Father. That's how Jesus is able to make the Father known to us because that's the intimacy he shared with the Father from all eternity. And so he's uniquely qualified to make God known to us. The Greek word for make God known, for make God known, here's the word from which we get our word exegete. And so when a preacher preaches, we talk about him exegeting the Bible, explaining the Bible. Jesus is the one that exegetes God for us. He explains God to us. He makes him known to us. Another way to think of it is simply say this. Jesus is the word for God. Jesus is the word for God. Now, think of our imaginary friend from earlier, one of the hobbits, walking into the room. 
he could say, look at me, touch my feet, my hairy big feet, uh, look at me, and, and he could see what a hobbit is like. You don't have to imagine it anymore. Jesus says, look at me, and you can see not just what a God is like, but what the God is like by looking at me. Now, we talked about this some last week, but on the one hand, this is incredibly good news to us because it means that the, the, the unseen creator has made himself known and we don't have to take wild guesses, make wild guesses about what God might be like. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, we read about Paul in Athens and it says he's distressed because he sees that the city's full of idols. And he comes across one idol with an inscription at the base that says, to an unknown God. And he uses that kind of as a launching point. And he says to them, Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. I am going to proclaim to you. And then he proclaims to them the God of the Bible. See, in one sense, he applauds them. And you know what? You're on the right track. You're worshiping something bigger than yourself. And that's a right impulse to worship. But on the other hand... You're not worshiping the true God. Let me show you. Let me point you to the true God, the unseen God that you're looking for. And so it's it's good news for us that we don't just have to make a guess and build an altar and hope that somehow we're connecting with an unknown God. That God has made Himself known to us. But it's bad news on the other hand for anybody who would say, you know, however you want to think about God, you think about God that way. You just, just come up with your own idea of him, and that's fine. This means we can't just design a God like we would design a, a, a me on Nintendo Wii, okay? We don't just create what God is like and give him the characteristics that we want to give to him. We have to look at who he is, uh, reveal himself to be, who he has revealed himself to be, and respond appropriately. The second implication of this, though, is uh, I just want to ask us, have you taken the time to stop and be amazed by this? Have, have you just taken the time to stop and be amazed by this? In, in the middle of all the, you know, all the fun Christmas running around, in, in the middle of all just the, the busyness of, of the whole year, have you stopped to think about the fact that the Creator took on human flesh so that He could die for you? He took on human flesh, not just like on a lark, well, that might be fun. But, but he took on human flesh so that he could die for the sins of his people. Have, have you stopped to think about that? And if you've stopped to think about that, has stopping to think about it led you to worship? Has it led you to sing? Has it led you to smile? Um, has it led you to rejoice? Has it led you to dance for joy? I mean, I know we're all Presbyterians here, or most of us are Presbyterians here, and we don't dance and clap, and it, it comes off really bad when we try to clap. Um, <laughs> maybe we're hoping Keith can give us clapping lessons one day. Um, but when nobody's looking, you ought to be dancing and singing and clapping and rejoicing in the fact that, that God's love for us is real, and we can see that in the Incarnation. Jesus became man to make God known. 
But the second reason he became a man was to show us God's glory. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this would have been, if you were a Jew living at this time in the world, this would have been a stunning verse for you to read. Because what it literally says is that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was where God met with His people prior to the construction uh, of the temple. It was a canvas, tent-like structure. It's about 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. And it's where God made His presence known to His people. Listen to a couple verses. Exodus 25, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 40, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The, the, the glory of God, God in all His glory, He dwells with His people in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. And John is saying, which is what would be so stunning, the way that God dwells with His people now, the way that God makes His presence and His glory known among His people now is in the person of Jesus Christ. And even more amazingly, John says, and we have seen His glory. We have, we have looked on His glory. Uh, in Exodus 40, Moses can't go in because the glory of God is so great. In John chapter 1, the glory of God has come and He dwells with, with men, with sinful men and women in such a way that we can see the glory. We can see the glorious one. We we're, we're even, can even be drawn to that glory. And then, to just ramp it up another notch, in John 17 we read, Jesus saying, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And he's talking about his disciples. Jesus' disciples not only see his glory, but as they follow Him and obey Him and walk with Him and trust Him, they begin to reflect His glory to the world around them. Alright, think about this. And this is not the greatest illustration, but I think it'll, it'll, it'll make a point. Think of some kind of radioactive substance that maybe was in your neighborhood somewhere when you were a child. And you always want to go sneak a peek at it because it gave off this magnificent, beautiful light, and you were just drawn to it. But you couldn't, because you knew that if you came face to face with it, if you got close to it, if you touched it, it would actually result in your death. But then one day, and you don't really understand how, a UPS package arises, winds up on your porch, and you open it, and that stuff that you always wanted to look at is in there. But it's there in a way that you can look at it and still be amazed by it, but it doesn't kill you. And you can touch it, and you can look at it. And the more time you spend in its presence, the more kind of radioactive you get in a healthy way. And you, I don't know, it's kind of silly. But, but, but you, you begin to absorb that, and you begin to reflect its glory to the people around you. And it's not bad for you, it's good for you, and it's good for the people around you. As well. Not the best illustration, but, but John is telling us that the glorious one 
that we couldn't get near, even though we wanted to get near Him, has actually come to us in such a way. He's come to us in such a way that it doesn't destroy us and it's actually good for us and health-giving to us. And that as we spend time in the presence of this glory, we begin to reflect that glory ourselves. The glory comes to us. The glory comes in the Gospel of John in an unexpected way. Um, I've probably over the last two weeks read every article on the internet I could find about Auburn's last second uh, victory over Alabama. And you guys knew this is going to wind up in an illustration eventually, so just suck it up and deal with it. Um, but but, but I've read every story I could find about this, this last second miraculous 109-yard field goal return for a touchdown to win the game. It even sounds silly talking about it, that that would actually happen. But one of the better articles I found written about that was actually written by somebody from the Stanford uh, newspaper, from the Stanford student paper. And this is, I want you to listen to a little bit of what that writer on the other side of the country no real connection with this football game said about it. He said, we won't understand why Stanford Stadium, right, where they have a football game going on, of all places erupted in cheers as Davis's run for the ages unfolded on the screen. We won't ever truly understand why a single football game meant so much to Auburn or to anybody else. The answer is different for everyone, even if the outcome is the same. We do know, however, that we appreciate the dramatic. Put aside the fact that last season Auburn finished 3-9 and nine and lost to Alabama by seven touchdowns. After winning three national championships in four years, Alabama was invincible. Nick Saban called his achievement a process, and it seemed as though all of college football was being processed through the world's most soul-crushing meat grinder. Every time Alabama lost the game, it was as if the world had turned upside down and decided to spin the other way for good measure. The feeling still persists. Alabama is not gone. Saban is still one of the greatest coaches of all time. The Crimson Tide is still loaded with NFL talent across its roster. But that only magnifies Auburn's glory. And he writes, they say that at the Big Bang, all that has ever existed was compressed into a single point in space. On Saturday, America converged in a small town in eastern Alabama. And for a moment, Jordan-Hare Stadium held a country inside its walls. As sports fans, this game is part of who we are. We are here to witness the impossible brought to life in pads, a leather ball, and freshly mown grass. And on Saturday night, all the vast expanse of college football lay before us, terrifying and compelling, obvious and unknowable, transient and immortal, and all at the same time. Now, maybe it's a little bit over the top, uh, but 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 he's he's trying to he's trying to capture something of the glory of the moment, and, and I want you to think about that guy returning the kick for a minute. Who, who by the way, is going, to find, is going to have the easiest time finding a job of anybody who's ever graduated from Auburn. Um, but he, 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 gets, he gets a standing ovation when he walked into class on Monday. The crowd went berserk at his graduation this week when his name was called to give him a diploma. Um, but, but, but think about him 
Think about his glory as he's running down the field that day with, with thousands of people cheering for him. Just unbelievably loud. With teammates jumping on top of him and, and mobbing him. Uh, with the stands emptying. And, and I, Clemson people may not get this because I know y'all are on the field for everything. But, but they don't let you on the field at Auburn. All right? they, they, they just don't. They don't. Ask Georgia fans, and that's a whole story. But they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't let you on the field at Auburn. But they couldn't stop them. Everybody wanted to be a part of that glory at that moment. And then everybody's mobbing him. Everybody's wanting to talk to him. And then his grandmother somehow finds him in the middle of that crowd. Now I want you to. I, I tell you all that story because it's like reliving it. Now I, I tell you all that story because I want to. I want to contrast it with something. Okay. I want to contrast it with something. A lot of people expected Jesus Christ, that's what they expected his glory to be like. That, that he was going to be this conquering hero who came and, and he overthrew the, the oppressive, uh, unbeatable Roman army. That he was going to lead the march, the march of glory. That he was going to run the 109 yards with the Israeli flag and, and set it at the feet of the Roman soldiers and drive them out of town. As he listened to the people cheer for him. That's what people thought was going to happen. But instead, how does his life end? How does the life of the glorious one end? It ends with him staggering to his own death. Carrying the cross that he's going to be crucified on. Listening to the crowds, not cheering for him, but mocking him. Listening to the crowds shout out, crucify him, crucify him. Listening to people mock him. Dying on the cross, not as his mother comes to hug him, but as his mother simply watches him die on that cross. And the scripture says that that cross was his glory. This doesn't make sense to us. That this is the point where Jesus is glorified is where he's hanging on the cross. Um, John chapter 12, 12 tells us that as Jesus approached the crucifixion, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, here's how we tend to think about this. And this is not wrong, but it's perhaps not complete. We tend to think about this in a way... That Jesus' suffering simply came before Jesus' glory. And then Jesus suffered, and then he was glorified. And that's true. The glory was a result of the suffering. But what Jesus is speaking of here is that he was actually glorified through suffering. There was glory that came through suffering. And, and here's how one author put it, and this is an article of Christianity Today. He said, according to J.I. Packer, glory is excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. The original iPhone, for example, was impressive in its design before anyone ever saw it. But when Steve Jobs unveiled it to the world, it was a moment of glory. Likewise, the glory of God is God's going public with his infinite beauty. As Jonathan Edwards taught, glory is not merely another one of God's attributes or characteristics. Rather, it is the admirable, admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Glory is the dazzling, jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring showcase of God's character to a world darkened by sin. 
It is the explosive radiance produced by His holiness, love, mercy, justice, wisdom, and power, all of which come together in the most fitting way in the death of Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see God's justice through the judgment of sin, God's love through the forgiveness of sinners, God's power through His defeat of Satan, and God's wisdom in His upholding of holiness yet making a way for sinners. Christ's death is the ultimate, thus saith the Lord. It reveals the glorious harmony of God's multifaceted character. The cross is the crossroads of everything we know about God. At the cross, the most unimaginable victory over what, what looked to be the most invincible foe was achieved. And it was achieved, the most unimaginable victory over the most invincible foe was achieved in the most unimaginable, unexpected way. Sin was judged. Satan was defeated. Death was destroyed by the God-man suffering on a cross because He loved you. Opening up the way to God for you. And that cross shows us the greatness of the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became a man to show us the glory of God, but we see that glory most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. How should we react to that? How should we react to that glorious moment? We're not going to run onto the field to celebrate. What do you do? This suggests if you have seen His glory, if you've seen what He did for you, you will celebrate. We will celebrate. But we won't celebrate what we've accomplished. We'll celebrate what He's accomplished. As the song beneath the cross of Jesus says, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, what? My glory on the cross. The cross is my glory. Secondly, we'll see that God's glory is sometimes most evident in suffering. And this is from that same article I referenced earlier, but listen to this just a second. Many of us instinctively feel that if we are faithful to Jesus, then life will go well for us. If I'm just faithful to Jesus, everything's going to work out okay. We will find comfort, success, and maybe even wealth. But that's the logic of the American dream, not the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, A king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. A strange kingdom indeed. And the king who was glorified on the cross advances his kingdom by calling his followers to take up their own crosses. Followers of Jesus are bound for glory. But what is true for Christ is true for those who are in Christ. Glory comes through suffering. Paul says that as co-heirs with Christ, we will suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Our world operates according to the logic that weakness and power are opposites. But the cross turns this concept on its head. Christ said, My grace is sufficient for you, but my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not that God's power is made perfect despite our weakness or after we have suffered. No, His power is made perfect in our weakness. God certainly can and does display His power through healing and intervention. 
But it is through weakness that we learn to cling to God's strength. And the weakness that Paul speaks of does not refer to sinfulness, but to the adversities of ordinary life. In the difficulty of transition, God is our constant. In the frailness of old age, God is our strength. In the darkness of depression, God is our hope. God is not waiting for us on the other side of suffering. He meets us in our suffering. Jesus came to show us God's glory. But we see that glory most clearly in the cross. And that means that one of the places that we'll see God's glory most clearly in our own lives is when He works in and through us in the midst of, in spite of our own weakness and suffering. Jesus came to make God known. Jesus came to show us God's glory. Jesus came to show us God's grace. Verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. In Exodus 34, we're looking at Exodus 11. They, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful to His people. He keeps His promises to His people. He is gracious to His people. He will save His people from His sins. And that's why He sent Jesus Christ. He saves His people through Jesus Christ. As Jesus takes upon Himself the covenant curses the punishment for sin that each one of us deserve. The, the curse that should have fallen on my head falls on his head instead. Over the Thanksgiving holidays, we went and watched the movie Frozen. Um, and if, if I mess this story up, then just oh well. But you can go back and watch it yourself. But but in the but in the movie there there are two characters and one of them, two sisters, and one of them uh, has literally a frozen heart. A heart that's been literally frozen by the magic of her sister. Uh, and as the movie progresses, she actually winds up laying down her life to save this sister. The sister who was frozen in her heart, she jumps in front of, I think it was a sword or something, that was intended for her sister. She jumps and she saves her sister's life. And I'm leaving some details out, but with this sister who had frozen her sister's heart, when she sees the love that her sister has for her, it transformed her. See, her heart wasn't literally frozen, but the whole meaning of her heart had been spiritually frozen. And there had been a, a troll, I believe, who had prophesied only an act of true love can fall, can fall a frozen heart. And in one sense, he's talking about one whose heart was literally frozen, but in another sense, he's talking about the sister whose heart was spiritually frozen, and it's the love of the sister that falls the hard, frozen heart of her sister. The Bible, when it talks about our hearts, it doesn't say that they're frozen, but it says they're stunned. It says by nature, we have hearts of stone, hearts that are hardened against God and against our neighbor. Uh, hearts that love ourselves more than others. And the only thing that has the power to change our hearts, the only thing that has the power to unfreeze our hearts is the steadfast love and grace of God that we see in Jesus Christ. The only thing that can unfreeze your heart 
that can thaw the heart is the heart that you and I so often feel is to see a love of Jesus Christ willingly giving himself up, taking on flesh in order to die for you. Jesus came to show us the grace of the Father. Jesus came to perform the one true act of love that can really thaw a frozen heart. Jesus came to make God known, to show us His glory, to show us His grace. And He came that we might know God. Not just know about God, but know God. And we're going to get into more into how this works next week, but just I'll just leave you with this, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what the Christmas offer is, perhaps we put it that way. That's what God offers to you. Not just to know about him in some generic sense, but to actually have a personal relationship with him. To have your sins washed away, to have your guilt removed, to, to be adopted into the very family of the Father. And it all comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It all comes by receiving by faith the King who has stepped out of the pages of the story and stepped into the real world in order to die for you. You pray for us. King Jesus, we... Um, we pray that you would amaze us this Christmas season. And uh, that we won't just be caught up in the hustle and bustle or worn out by the busyness, but that you give us those moments to reflect on the glory of the incarnation, your glory, and the glory of your cross, and what that means, and how that changes our expectations for what life is going to be like. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that, that we would indeed be those who are looking to you in faith, knowing you, loving you, seeing how much you love us. Pray in your name. Amen.